Hi, and welcome to Blissful Spinster. This week's guest is writer-director Jack Perez. Jack lives in Portland, Oregon, and is a member of both the DGA and the WGA, and has over a dozen feature films under his belt, including the indie genre hit, Some Guy Who Kills People, La Cucaracha, which won Best Feature Film at the Austin Film Festival, and The Big Empty, which won the Best New Writer Award at the AFI Film Fest. Jack is also the head of the directing track at the Academy of Art in San Francisco. More importantly, he's one of my oldest friends and a mentor, and I'm super excited to share this conversation with you all. It's filled with nuggets about both writing and directing that are sure to be helpful reminders on your own journeys. So however you found this podcast, thank you for tuning in, and please enjoy this week's episode. Hi, Jack. How are you doing? Hey, Chris. How are you? It's been a long time. It has been a long time. I've completely lost track of the time, as I'm sure most people have, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, the two, the last two years seem like uh, a couple decades. <laughs> yeah, well, for me, it was even more extreme because we moved. You know, we oh, lived. Wow. Yeah, I didn't know that. Oh, so this is all new to you. Yeah. I'm not. I'm not in California. We're not in California anymore. Oh, where'd you go? We went to Portland. Uh, oh, that, makes, that makes total sense, actually. Does it? I don't know. I mean, I've lived in. I lived 30 years in Los Angeles. So moving up to Portland during the pandemic. Uh, just made the whole thing even more surreal if that's possible. So um, it's still a very big adjustment, um, but we love it. It's just, it's, it's totally different, you know, as you can imagine. To, to clue the listeners in, uh, you, you and I met many, many years ago mm-hmm. in, a, in another century. <laughs> 1998-ish? Ish. It was seven, I believe. It probably seven was, yeah, the year that we started production and stuff. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And... You saw me listing away as the assistant to the legal person at this company I was at. Right. And it, I enjoyed it enough at the start because I was learning, oh, what are these contracts and what is this? But eventually I was like, why am I still here? Right. And it was because, I can't remember her name, I wish I could, but um, she, was, she was pretty funny, but nobody liked her. Mm. Like, like the people... She was negotiating with. I don't know if I ever told you this. No. The other reps, whether it was agents or managers or lawyers for whoever the actors were, yeah, would have their assistants call me to tell me to change things in there. Really? Because they would deal with her. It was wow, pretty hilarious. That's good. That's yeah. That's you know. Yeah. Meanwhile, I've just arrived. You know, and it's one of my first. All of a sudden, they're requesting you over the yeah. actual. That's <laughs> like, like I, I, I have a master's in technical theater. I don't know if I'm the right person to talk to. It's all right. Every most people in in Hollywood are completely faking it entirely. You know, so <laughs> that's all right. But I mean, like you were saying, yeah, at a certain point, you ran up against a brick wall in terms of how how interesting this yeah. legal aspects of film production were, right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, it served me. Over the years, like, because I can understand, like, when I get something, I'm like, oh, okay, that's normal or that's whatever. But it wasn't. Actually, that's interesting because you do have, yeah, you know, because I think most of us are really at the mercy of our attorneys when it comes to contracts and deal memos and all that stuff. And I think also because most creative people's brains are not wired to remotely have have the slightest interest or grasp of of what a legal document is. It just doesn't doesn't compute. So the fact that you were actually able to get some of that experience is, you know, uh, helpful for sure, for sure. Yeah, it was helpful. I mean, and, and I totally get it. I, I've never, like, that's not, mm-hmm. 
I didn't study business. I didn't study law. Like there was a very concerted effort to study something artistic in my background, but yep. it is a business. Right. And, you know, the, the longer you're in it, the more you realize, oh, if I want to be creative, I got to know that stuff too, because I'm going to get screwed if I don't, you know? You're right. I, I remember I once had a, it was almost like something out of a, you know, Damon Runyon sort of moment where an old, an old TV director came up to me and I was, I was, when I was very young in my twenties and I was talking about mm-hmm. the kinds of films that I preferred to make and, and he was like, it ain't show art, kid. show business i said uh-huh yeah i know i'm aware of that i know i know yeah but but uh yeah no it's true i mean that's probably the greatest all the all the, i think all the pains that filmmakers working at all in hollywood come from that collision of of those two those two words show and business and and they tr- they really you know it is like kind of like oil and water it does it has to work to a certain degree, in many ways, it's a miracle that anything gets made. Get, get not only just gets made that turns out to be you know successful aesthetically or creatively, considering mm-hmm. how many business and political obstacles have to be negotiated, which has nothing to do with the creative process, which in and of itself is already like if you removed all the business. And politics out of the process of making film or any art, you would the creator would run up against innumerable uh, obstacles, as you know, that could destroy the project at any given moment. When you add into that stew all of this other shit, which has nothing to do with with the creative process, and still manage to make something that is um, beautiful or resonant or whatever, or even just effective. Uh, is a miracle, I think. I, I, I'm, I'm, I'm astounded, you know, still astounded to this day, as long as I've been in it, that that good work is possible. Yeah. Considering, you know, what you're dealing with, a lot of the time. Yeah, I think, um, and you know, now I'm in the middle mm-hmm. of, of where you've probably been for years, because I, you know, I, I ended up going up, as you know, you know, a, a different kind of track than when you first met me. Mm-hmm. You know, which I think was born out of that injury I had that. The, you know, because you remember that. I yeah. My leg injured for about nine months. I couldn't work. Yep. Um, and then I wind up on this, you know, unscripted, you know. Um, but it's all made me a better writer and a better creator, actually, because of all of that experience. And I was directing out there whether they wanted to give me that credit or not. Because mm-hmm. in unscripted, as you know, it's it's it was non-union. Right. And they called you a producer. Right. Even when you were on the field. And it's like... But I'm directing. Right. Right. <laughs> you know? Right. Like, but they don't want the DGA involved. So right. you're called a producer. That's right. <laughs> you know? It's easier. And I think that's changing now. I see that, you know, in the younger people. And that's, I'm happy, you know, it's just, um, but I want to get my film made, right? And Of course. And yeah, there's all these, it's the hardest mountain you'll ever climb mm-hmm. to get, to even get to the plateau where you're actually filming. You know, never mind. Yeah, just getting, just getting there. Yeah, yeah. Into editing, never mind into your festival run and distribution or whatever it is. You know, like all of those. Right. Like I, I liken it to with a lot of people is it's like I'm trying to climb Mount Everest, mm-hmm. but you have to look at it in stages, right? So you don't drive yourself nuts going 
let's look at that. It's what's the next thing I need to do? No, absolutely. I think that's the, I think it's true. It's true of a lot of things. You know, I find like you get, when you get overwhelmed with even just how much shit you have to do in your house or whatever, it's like, you can't look at the whole, Mm -hmm. the whole thing. Otherwise you'll just, you'll be completely overwhelmed. I think even in the shooting of a movie, you know, when you get to that, finally get to that stage of, of filming, I, I very much, you know, even though I've thought about and, and designed and, you know, I'm one of those directors, as you know, tries to think about the whole thing before I make it so that to me, it, it all becomes of one design. You know, I shoot mm-hmm. according to a plan. Not everybody does that. But in the preparation, you know, I'm looking at the whole thing. I want to know how one scene flows into the other. I want to know how visually scenes interconnect and I'm modulating that as, you know, in many ways, directing is like being a conductor or an arranger. You know, you're, you're arranging all these instruments and it should, it should, there should be a harmony. There should, it should interlock in a certain way uh, for it to have form and pace and all that junk. And, but still what I was getting at is when you get down to shooting, all I think about is really the scene in front of me or the scenes for that day. I can't even begin to think about what's tomorrow or a week from now when I'm shooting. It's as if the only thing that exists is the scene in front of me. And I think that's, in almost like whatever scene you're making, my philosophy is kind of like, well, what if that's the whole movie? Like, what if the whole movie lives or dies on this scene? Well, then you're going to, like, really mine that scene for everything it's got. You're not going to say, well, this is a throwaway scene. Uh, tomorrow's scene's much more important. I think it's better to, like, just drill down on what's in front of you and give you give everything to that, and then it's done. That's why it's like one of my favorite directors, the great Sam Fuller, um, you know, who directed The Big Red One and and uh, Shock Corridor and was considered one of the greatest independent filmmakers, even though he worked in the studio system quite a bit. He was a kind of a wild man. But his, his whole thing is when he would say cut, like at the end of a, of a take, his thing, and he had this very, I guess everybody I'm referring to has these gruff voices, but he would say, cut it, forget it, meaning like it's over like cut it forget it and you hear that if you see any behind the scenes like cut it forget it it's almost like to the actors and to himself he's saying that's behind us now yeah like that's done like that's been banked now onto the next thing which is another reason why i don't even like to look at dailies which is something that directors get you know as you know yeah every night more or less because if you're looking at dailies then you're thinking about what you probably fucked up or you're going to just going to get bogged down in what has already happened as opposed to thinking about what you have to, what you have to do. So it's an interesting kind of philosophy that you have to like all directors have to create their own, like how, you know, what's the best way to work. Yeah. It's interesting. Cause um, I listen to a lot of um, different pod. I, I love the podcast. <laughs> like there's so much information hmm. available to us now that necess- wasn't necessarily to, like I didn't go to film school, mm-hmm. so I didn't necessarily have those voices in my head telling me what to read or what to watch or whatever, right? And so right. it's kind of self-taught in that way. And but podcasts, like you know, you end up hearing an actor interviewed or a producer or whatever, right? And it's funny because I'll, I'll listen to certain actors and somewhere like they always want to go see replay what this what they just shot, and others are like, I don't want to see it. Mm-hmm. You know, and it's the same thing, you know, directors, some directors who want to watch dailies. Like, I, I'm i like, you know, with my shorts, I don't think I watched any of my, 
I would shoot and then bank it. Mm -hmm. You know, I didn't, I didn't go that night to look at it to see. Well, there was a natural, I mean, to that point, you know, prior to shooting in high definition, where you've got presumably a high definition monitor that on set that shows you literally exactly what you're assuming a LUD has been applied or a general kind of LUD where you can get a real close sense to what the final image is going to look like. If you're seeing it and you're approving those moments and saying, cut, great, we got it. Then it's, you know, barring some technical disaster, it's there. There's not going to be any surprises. You saw it. Whereas prior to that, you know, when, when we got together, you know, we were, I was still shooting 35 millimeter film. Yeah. Um, you know, monitors, video villages were much more um, lo-fi and many times black and white. And so when you were, you know, even at a director at a monitor, you were still kind of, it was still an abstraction. Mm -hmm. You weren't seeing what the processed film was going to look like. So there was, a, there's a certain magic and natural curiosity that accompanies dailies prior to the digital age because you really wanted to see what was going to come out of this magical cauldron of chemical lab. You're like, what, what is all this lighting and laboratory really going to yield? Uh, what's it really going to look like? So there was a, there was, I had more curiosity then, but still, I think I got hung up on what I perceived to be mistakes or missed opportunities. And then I was like, my mind was not on, on what was coming, which I thought was more important. So to, to that, to that point, there's an old rule, which I think, I can't remember if it's attributed to Stephen King. Or no, I think it was Coppola. Coppola, one of the lessons I learned from him as a writer was, maybe even told this to you, yeah. was don't reread what you wrote like yesterday. Like when you're sitting down to write today, don't your your instinct is going to be like, well, let's look at these 20 pages that I wrote. And, I, and it's a natural curiosity, but I think when I do that, I just start to get bogged down and, oh, well, let me change that. And I don't like that. And maybe I don't want to write this at all as opposed to just putting that away and picking up where you left off just so you can get through, yeah, you know, get through the draft. Yeah. That first draft. And then look at the whole thing and, and hate it, but at least you've gotten through yeah. the draft, you know? Yeah. I, I remember you telling me that a very long time ago. And I think a couple other people might've said something like that to me. Like I, I think in the, mm -hmm. um, I think back to myself in the nineties and I know I was, uh, pretty fearless about who I'd go up to and ask to, you know, like advice and whatever, which is yeah. what you're supposed to do when you're, you're in your twenties and whatever. No, I envy that. I've always been very, you know, timid about that. You know, I always feel very self-conscious. So, I mean, to be able to go up to somebody and say, Hey, you know, tell me what's what is like, great. That's, yeah, that's an ad admirable quality. <laughs> but I think, I, I think I, what I do is I think I, I don't go back more than two pages, but I think I will go back to like, just a little bit before where I'm going to go, just so I mm -hmm. I can see where it is. And if there's an issue, like if there's something, like if I came up with something the night before or something, mm -hmm. I might go back and write in some, not the whole thing, but go, this is where this goes. And then I continue on because, yeah, yeah that especially that first draft, that's, that's an accomplishment. And I think people don't give themselves enough of a pat on the back. I completely agree with that, uh, that completing any writing process, particularly a script, in and of itself is a huge accomplishment. You know, people don't give themselves enough credit. That is a, that's a mountain that is not everybody can climb. Mm -hmm. And when you get through it, regardless of what you think the worth of that first draft is, that's a, that's a big deal. Yeah. And you should be proud of yourself because 
that's not easy to knock out a hundred, 120 page story. You know, that's the hard, in many ways, as so many people have said, that's the hardest part of the whole thing anyway. It's just like coming up with the story. That's what Chaplin said. Yeah. It's just like just coming up with the idea was the hardest part. Everything else was like easy comparative, comparatively. So, um, yeah, and I still consider myself a director more than a writer. And so I still have much more respect for the people who practice that because I do think it's the hardest, that's the hardest aspect uh, of the whole thing. Yeah, I mean, that it's that blank page, you know. Mm-hmm. I, and I, I don't know that I've ever, because, you know, you always hear those stories, I'm afraid of that blank page. Or, mm-hmm. I don't know that I've ever felt trepidation for a blank page. I feel more like excitement, like mm. that's, it's, it's wide open for you to put something down on, right? You know, like that's a that's a that's a classic. Well, you're an optimistic. You've always been a very optimistic, glasses half full kind of person. So someone like yourself may look at the the empty page or the blank page because empty is already negative. The blank page and see just boundless opportunity for or for creativity. And somebody else may look at it and just see like a, 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 you know an abyss. You know where where do I begin and what, you know, I mean, I, I think for me, just, you know, my own thing is that I never really felt entirely comfortable sitting down with no idea and just starting to type. I usually think about something for quite a while so that I've got enough like elements junk, like kind of ricocheting around in my brain before I begin writing so that I bring this like bag of concepts to the table so at least i have a for me i have a jumping off point so i don't feel like i run out of road too quickly Uh, other people you know as you know like outline things entirely and in those instances where i've been hired as a writer and as by a studio they demand that so like i mean even though my preference is to kind of have a loose outline or no outline sometimes but just have a lot of notes Studios are like, no, I want to see a beat sheet and I want to see a full blown. Basically, you know, you're they want to know every single thing that's going to happen, maybe besides the dialogue itself. So there's very little surprising yourself in the process of writing it because you've worked it out uh, to a T. And some some scripts, I guess, benefit from that. Others, maybe not. But um, I do I do the same thing. I mean, that a lone girl was. I think the idea came to me in September of 2018, and I didn't start writing until the beginning of the next year. Right. So because I was thinking about it, you know, and so it's germinating. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think that's germinating. But I consider that part of the writing process. It is writing. The blank page starts in your brain. That's right. And but I also and you're right. I mean, I've always been an optimist. I think of things as in the terms of it's an adventure, you know. Oh, but I, that's probably because I grew up didn't grow up. You know, in my own hometown, I grew up in another country. I grew up, you know, like, I think I was just wired. Yeah, and your parents probably weren't neurotic, anxious, anxiety-filled, crazy, you know, like, not that mine were entirely that, but, um, yeah, you know, it's definitely genetic and and, and environmental. And, uh, yeah, I've always been, you know, um, I've always been attracted to people who have that sort of buoyant, optimistic, like yourself, Um I need, in many ways, like to surround myself with people who are like that because I don't think inherently, you know, I, I have that that capability. I'm always kind of like looking for the other shoe to drop, kind of thing. And and um, 
Um, so I always, again, I think that's like a quality that I really admire in you. And, um, so, I mean, as far as your movie though, I mean, the writing process is effectively over. Yeah. Right. And you're on the, you're, you're on the cusp of. So the draft, it's at it like a, I would say 28th draft. Jeez. And I'd like to say that so that people know it's been worked on Mm -hmm. and it's been refined and, I'm super proud of where it is mm-hmm. and how strong it is. I think the draft you read was really early on. Hmm. It might have even been before I put it into the festival run. Right. So I think it was at like its fifth draft. And so the fifth draft is what became the semi-finalist in three categories at the Austin Film Festival. Mm-hmm which from hearing from them was pretty rare. I think there's a lot of scripts that make it to that level on two of the, you know, because they've got several different yeah. categories or whatever. Yeah. And I remember getting the, the call that it didn't move on to the finals in one of the three. And to note my optimism, the guy calling me was more upset that I hadn't moved on than I was. Mm-hmm. And I was like, well, first off, it's just amazing that it got to where it did. You know, it's the first competition I've ever entered. Sure. And secondly, it's their loss. It's not my loss. It's their loss for not seeing it. You know, and you know my script. It's it's um, for those listeners who are coming in and don't know. It's it's a it's an um, coming a middle aged story wrapped in an unromantic comedy that does not end the way right. every rom com's ever supposed to end. Right. I've turned it on its head. Right. So to expect right out of the gate for people to get it you know, that would have been really optimistic of me, (laughs) you know? I guess, yeah. But you know what? Actually, you bring up something that's very interesting. Um, Another admirable quality, which is just, well, I mean, you bring up a couple things. Number one is it's it's very easy for us, and I was guilty of this when I was a young filmmaker, um, to give a festival, no matter how prestigious, and those people who run it, this sort of godlike, appreciation in terms of them being able to determine what is good and what is not good, mm-hmm. what moves on and what does not move on. Because ultimately, these are just people with opinions. They may be educated, they may even be artists in and of themselves, they may have good taste, but it's still a body of people, simple people with opinions. And that there is there doesn't exist some magical you know, a tribunal of geniuses that can determine whether your thing is better or does more deserved or less deserved than somebody else. But we want to believe we need this sort of approbation. So we kind of give it to these people. And you got, I think it's important to ask yourself when you're submitting to any festival and say you don't get in, because most cases you don't. I mean, I can't tell you how many festivals I haven't gotten into. And I mean, I've been lucky enough to get into a few. Uh, but many and win, <laughs> yeah. But many more turned down for inexplicably. And there's again, there's so much politicking, there's so much uh, personal agendas and all kinds of shit that you're not privy to. That has nothing to do whether your movie's better than or your script is better than anybody else. So I mean, I always tell people. In fact, I was telling this to my niece who just started writing a novel and gave it to just a family member who uh, she doesn't particularly respect, mm-hmm. who came back and started giving her notes that were ridiculous. And I said to her, and she got started getting upset. And I said, well, first of all, you know, I think it's important to realize that you should only take criticism from people whose opinions you respect. Yeah. You know what I mean? If you, you know, why are you going to get upset by somebody you don't even like, you know, like, why do you want the approval of somebody who you don't even respect? 
and knowing having a certain sense not a not an ego gigantic ego and saying my shit doesn't stink but knowing if you, if you believe in this thing and you know it's good and somebody goes nah you know it's not for, for us rather than taking on that and going oh maybe i'm not so good and maybe they're right and maybe i suck which is totally human to suddenly go well maybe they're wrong and actually to your point maybe it's their loss i remember when we did i did this film some guy who kills people and i had my sort of one of my mentors in the business who passed away fairly recently stuart cornfeld who was at brooks films for many years he produced um, the Fly, David Cronenberg's The Fly, and he produced The Elephant Man. He's the one that brought David Lynch to Mel Brooks uh, to, to get him to direct The Elephant Man. And then for many, many years, he was um, um, Ben Stiller's producing partner on all everything, Dodgeball, and everything you ever heard of, um, Tropic Thunder and all those movies. But Stewart was an early supporter of, of my work. He had seen The Big Empty. Uh, he was one of the judges at the, I don't know, the AFI Film Festival or something. And that won, like, the writing award, but it didn't win the directing award. And I got a call from him that was kind of like, he was like, you know, Jack, I would have, you know, I think you should have been in there for the directing award, but I had to negotiate so that you guys could get the writing award because they were kind of, they were friends, they wanted this other guy. And automatically I knew, oh, I see, it's a whole game. There isn't, yeah. there isn't like this, like, truthiness going on about, like, it's all this, like, behind the scenes kind of stuff and what happened was when i did some guy who kills people and i hadn't talked to Stuart in a long time and i wanted his uh, i just wanted him to see it because i respected him i was like i wanted him to see it and i sent it to him and said hey man you know this is my new thing you know i'm curious you know what your opinion what your reaction is and he was very um supportive and, and very generous and loved it and said let me help you get it distributed because it hadn't been found a distributor yet. It was independently produced. Mm-hmm. So anyway, here's where we get to the point. So he's like, you know, I'm friends with, uh, you know, the guys over at Oscilloscope, you know, which oh, wow. to me, Oscilloscope was like, that's exactly where I want this film to be distributed. It had the right imprimatur and it, that that Oscilloscope presents this movie would be like, yeah, awesome. Mm-hmm. And so he took it in and he's friends with them. And he said, I'm going to bring it in and tell them it's great and blah, blah. So like a couple of weeks later, I, I called him up and said, hey, do you ever hear back from Oscilloscope? And he said, uh, yeah, they, they passed. And I said, and I went immediately, even though I had already been in the business 20 years already, I was like, oh, why didn't they like my, you know, I went into the, can you, what did, what did they say? Did they not like, what did, you know, and I have a, as you know, I, I believe in myself. I'm not like, oh, gee, am I any good? I, I, but at my reaction was like, oh, they skill scope didn't like it. What, what did they say? And I always remember Stuart's reaction to that. He said, fuck them. They don't like it. It's their fucking loss. Fuck them next. Like that was, and they were his friends. He was like, they're stupid. They don't get it. Fuck them. Yeah. And it was kind of like, right. Yeah. Right, 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 right. That's that's next. You know, like like they don't want it. Okay, for whatever reason, top too bad. They're they're lost. They don't get it. That's fine. No big deal. And I think it points to a bigger issue, which is skin thickness and just overall personalities. The personality that survives. Uh, in the business, I've been told more times than once, more more times than I can count, rather, that I'm too sensitive for this business, or I'm too take it too personally, or and that's just my uh, personality. I just take things too. Per- I think it's so much better 
if you're going to be in show business, that you don't take it personally, ever. You know, like it's it's a it's a it's a tall order, but it's like there's so many no's and there's so many like that to like take it on each one of these things, these rejections or these passes or I didn't get into this festival or that. To take that on is to just like, you know, destroy yourself, you know, because it isn't personal. Like what somebody passing on you is it's not generally is not a personal thing. Yeah, no, I mean, I was going to say, like, what got us on, on this whole thing was, you know, I didn't enter Austin Film Festival or the, like I had a very strategic reason why I'd done that with my script and which festivals I did or thing competitions I did enter with it. It was strategic because I don't have a I don't have a rep. And I'm like, mm -hmm. if it performs well at some of these more prestigious competitions, it's like somebody saying this is good right right and so i think that's kind of why i didn't necessarily take it as personally because i didn't i was i was i was already going i'm gonna make this film mm -hmm. this is the film i've written for me to direct mm -hmm. and you've read it it's it's very much me mm, totally you it's very personal yes and I don't think anyone else could direct. I mean, someone could direct it, but they're not going to... Bring to it what you're going to bring to it. That's right. What I'm going to bring to it, right? That's right. But it's taken me a while to get to this point. I, I, I was, I, I, I've got my sensitive, you know, sides and my going my feels and, you know. Um, but I think the older you get, I, you start to realize, fuck them. I, I, I wish I had come to that sooner. I, I think that it's a difficult thing because I think in order... I think the irony... And I've always said this is that to be any good as in a creative person, you have to be very vulnerable emotionally. You have to be in touch. You have to be open and naked and be willing, like to your point about like what you're going to bring. If you're telling a, a story that comes from experience and you want to, sometimes a very painful experience and you want to bring authenticity to that and you want to communicate that as a director to your actors and everybody else in the department, specifically your cinematographer, to get the atmosphere and to get that authenticity, you have to tap into that shit. And, and so you have to have like a, the ability, not everybody does that and has that ability to be that vulnerable. And to be any good, you have to be able, I think you need to be able to access that. At the same time, you're working within a business that is one of the most ruthless, ugly, um, insane, uh, brutal businesses on earth. And again, it's like show, but those things don't go together. Like it, it make, how can the most vulnerable people be expected to survive in an atmosphere, you know, where, where there be dragons every, you know, like everywhere it's crazy. So finding a way to, I guess, compartmentalize those things and open up your vulnerabilities when it's necessary creatively and going, putting the shields up, the blast shields up when you have to do everything else, I think is a, it, it takes a certain amount of time to, uh, to acquire those skills. It's a learned skill. Yeah, it's a, it's a learned skill. It I don't even know if I've learned, I've, I've, I probably still haven't learned it uh, all that well, but I look at people who just sort of like, these where these things would devastate me Inf information like you know rejections would devastate me they're just like glancing blows they just kind of like you know it's just like they just kind of skim skim off of some of these friends of mine i'm like they're fine and i'm like fuck how do you do that like i i want to be like that so for someone who hasn't you know 
kind of gone through the ringer, you do, I mean, you have, I mean, you've got, you've been in, in this business for a long time, um, maybe not in this exact capacity, but you've had enough experiences to know, to know the climate or the atmosphere or the egos and all that, the politics of, of filmmaking. So I think you're in a great, you're in a great position to like now bring all of that experience into a, your first, really your biggest sort of creative endeavor yeah you know i mean i'm excited like i you were talking about vulnerability i mean i was there were days i was petrified about the next scene i was writing Mm -hmm. because um as you learned in the script i mean my you you came from anxiety i came from a dad who named me after his lover i mean like (laughs) like that's a whole other kind of craziness and crazy you know totally and to turn that into comedy was super liberating but before getting to that moment of jumping off and learning like going oh if i write it this way you know Mm -hmm. you know like that's hilarious to me you know and now i got to execute it right i don't i wouldn't have been able to write this script when you met me Mm -hmm. i love that you can see the evolution in me right totally no totally big big change and that to me is the artist's journey right there, right? Absolutely. I, I mean, yeah. I mean, I think that, you know, some people say that, uh, particularly with filmmakers, that the filmmaker makes the same movie over and over and over again, meaning it's it's certain themes, certain characters, certain things repeat mm-hmm. film after film after film because they, they remain immediate and relevant sort of ideas about humanity or whatever that the filmmaker cannot get out of their system it's like it's just an unsolved it's not a it's not solved yet so i'm going to explore it again i'm going to explore it again at the same time you know you hope to like like you said evolve and i think if you look back at what you where you were at a certain point and you look at even if you look at your own tastes you know like what movies you liked at a certain age and what what movies Maybe something you saw when you were in your 20s didn't resonate. Suddenly you see it as an older person and you're like, wow, that that means something to me now. So context and where you are in your life and um, that's not only going to that's not only going to impact on your own taste about what you consume, but it's also going to certainly influence what you make or what you choose to make. Yeah. So, I mean, all those cliches are true, like all the shit that happens to you, particularly this, the, the traumatic stuff certainly is um uh gives you ammunition uh, or source for a creative work you know because you have something to talk about you know you have something to to uh, to express but i forget who it was i can't remember who which filmmaker it was was it trevanier or something i mean french new wave filmmaker who said, well, while everybody out of film school was going immediately to make their first feature, he decided to, like, take, like, five years off and just, like, live life just because he knew that he would not have a fucking thing to say in his first film until he had experienced something worth... I thought that, wow, talk about maturity. That's, like, an an foresight. Because I, you know, I couldn't wait to, you know, make my first feature. I couldn't, you know, I... To say, to say, and a lot of filmmakers do burn out, you know, they're like, okay, I said it all. I mean, look at someone as great as Woody Allen, you know, whose mm-hmm. first, you know, 20 movies are brilliant. And then the next 30 movies are, for the most part, shit. 
And you're like, how could that happen? Well, you haven't grown an inch. You know, you don't have anything new to say. You haven't, it's not immediate. It's not necessary. Like what you're doing, like, so, you know, having something nest, something that needs to come out is like a big, is a big part of it. Like, this is a story you need to tell. Or is this, you know, I was saying this to a student the other day, because he's, he's embarking like you on his first feature. And he's had, he has anxieties. And, and I was telling him, you know, you need to make this thing. That's going to help you get it done. There's a difference between needing to make something and just wanting to make something. Wanting is like everybody wants something, but having this kind of crusader's need to get this out of your system, that's there's a there's a fine line there and that does make the difference in many t- cases of of whether you make the actually end up making the thing. All kinds of things can get in the way and you know, I'm not saying that he, uh, if you only need it it'll happen, but it can be it can give you that edge. You steamroll or maybe you don't steamroll, but you recover from obstacles faster. Yeah, I listened to the Roger Deakins podcast mm. that he was doing with his wife over the pandemic. It's called Team Deakins, and you would nerd out. I heard about it, though, yeah. Yeah, you'd nerd out. Yeah, I bet. But he had a producer called John Killick on mm-hmm. who did Do the Right Thing, and he's a New York producer. Mm-hmm. And he, he was so good that they brought him on a second. Like, there's two parts to his interview. But he said something that I had known in my younger years, and I was in the middle of a really particularly difficult like moment in me trying to will my film into being Mm -hmm. you know and I'm starting from knowing no one like I'm because I like I said I wound up on a a different track in entertainment right which has made me a better storyteller but it means I don't have the kind of contacts Mm -hmm. that might help with making my film so now I'm I've written this thing and I'm like I'm gonna make this film (laughs) and now I gotta like all right, now how do I do this? I need to be 20. I need to channel 20-year-old Chris again, right? Mm. But he said, you got to let your obstacles guide you. Mm. It's like, oh my God. That is something one of my theater professors used to basically say a little differently in scene shop. You know, because we'd get these, I was studying to be a technical director and some (laughs) grandiose undergrad scene designer would come with this, you know, design for his set and the teacher, their, their professor, was famous for saying, don't think about the budget. You know, and I'm like, oh, you got to think about the budget, <laughs> you know. Right. At some point. Like, stop teaching them that. Because, <laughs> because budget is actually a very, very good driver of creativity. Yeah. You know. Yeah. And I would take those designs and I'd look at them and I'd pour over them and I'd figure out how to put into fruition what they're their idea was within a budget, right. you know? So yeah, I was in that, in that moment, I, cause you were asking kind of the journey I'm on, I've been trying to find financing and, mm-hmm. and that is a wild west, man. Mm. There is no Mm-mm. Mm-mm. rhyme, no reason. And, and deals mm-hmm. come in and it might go and then they go away for the most random mm-hmm. things, mm-hmm. you know? Mm-hmm. And you're, and you are on a roller coaster and you do get in your feels and you're like, what is going on? Mm-hmm. And you have to figure out how to wake up the next day because you go to bed destroyed. Like, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. like how could I know that, you know, we had this one um, guy who was going to be a Bitcoin type um, deal because the guy didn't <laughs> want the big bad tax guy involved. Right. 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 And basically we were coming up with a... With a model where we would have a shared wallet. I don't know how much you know about crypto. but Not at all. For the listeners who do know, they'll know what we're talking about. But there are now financial institutions that, are, that will loan you money with Bitcoin as collateral. So 
that shared wallet would be collateral for us to get a loan, basically a bridge loan right. for our for our development funds. Mm-hmm. And we, I mean, I was nursing this for months. Mm-hmm. The guys from up north and um, couldn't be nicer. Really wanted to help, but um, it kept stalling between the lawyers. Not my lawyer. And I got a call in February, and he's like, "So, what's been going on? Is my wife's divorcing me?" And <laughs> she's done it. The, jo- the judge has frozen my assets. And he has a studio and stuff up north, which you should know about because you might want to shoot there. Mm. But his Bitcoin, which he's been buying since, I'm assuming he bought it at like double digits. Like he's, mm-hmm. you know, like he was a f- really saw the, the future in it. Right. And that's part of his personal stuff. So frozen. And I'm like, all right, next, you know. But you go to bed one day going, I'm crushed. And you wake up the next going, all right how do I figure this out? Mm -hmm. How do I, you know, again, I guess it probably does help that I've got a bit of an optimistic streak in me. Absolutely. But I also, I think I had a friend ask me, how, how are you going to get it made? I said, I'm going to will it. I'm going to will it into being. Yeah. That's you. The very first person to believe in you has to be you Mm -hmm. is what I've learned over the years. Yeah. Oh yeah, for sure. You know, and I lost that for a while. You know, we weren't together for, Mm -hmm for many, many years, but I think I got a little lost. But I think I needed to get a little lost, and I needed to see that side of myself. Yeah. Um, yeah. To get myself reintroduced to the person that you met. Right. Sitting at that desk. Right. <laughs> going, I think, I think I'm think i the one who was like, can I be your assistant? <laughs> it was two, three days later, you came up and you're like, so, like somebody came up and said, so you're Jack's assistant, because they were letting you have one. Well, I was very lucky. You were my first and only assistant. Oh, really? Yeah, 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 yeah. No, I felt very spoiled, you know, to have an assistant. Well, it was, it was a pleasure. Well, I mean, you just turned out to be, you know, a great, such a great friend. So it just, you know, it wasn't, I never really, it wasn't like, yeah. but I know I never, I never really had an assistant after that. It, it's interesting. I mean, what I loved about working with you and you said it at the beginning of this was you were ostensibly my college on a set. Oh, well, that's good. For part, at least part of it, right? You know, mm-hmm, sure. And I'd look at you. You 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 mapped everything out, and we'd come to a set like you'd do a location scout. You and Sean would talk, you know, and I'd get to be there to right. see that. And you'd have your script, and you had it all storyboarded. And we'd get to set, and I think I remember. I don't think it was on La Cucaracha, but on the later stuff that was more studio stuff. Yeah, mm-hmm. I do remember. Like I think we shot at a bar for the. Brady Bunch? For the Brady Bunch. And I yeah. think I remember an executive asking you if you got it all. Right. Because you, you shot very little there, coverage. Right. But right. you already knew exactly how you were cutting the scene. Right. Right. So you weren't going to waste film. I, I think we were still shooting film at the time. Yeah, we were shooting 30. Yeah, we were shooting film 35 then. And, and, and time. Yeah. Yeah, and time and crew time. Mm-hmm. And I don't know that we ever really went into overtime on your sets much hopefully not so i hear stories now and i'm like why are you wasting your crew's time well like it, it points it points to how you approach directing i mean there's some people even you know as a teacher i try to teach those two sort of like if you're going to become a director i think it's really important to get a handle on sort of the two bookends of filmmaking, you know, forget about the specifics of directing, you're working within this medium and the sort of beginning and end, not truly the end, but the beginning is the camera and the end, more at least pictorially, is the edit. So to understand shots, 
just what shots mean and the difference between why a close-up, why a medium shot, why move the camera, why not move the camera, why from a low angle or a high angle, and on and on and on. Compositional values. Why shoot something one way versus another? Why frame it dead center? Why shoot it off center? Why, you know, use negative space? Why blah, blah. Like, understanding, like, those things. And then understanding how those pieces go together that you know in a film there's no there's actually very little difference between uh putting a film together shot by shot and putting a sentence together word by word or a musical composition note by note each note each shot each word has value but really it's all contextual it's how those those notes words images interrelate or interconnect and how they work together right Mm -hmm. um so to not think about like you don't have to you don't have to be um, fascistic and say it only goes together this way, but to not have a concept of how it might go together is not really it's not as much filmmaking what you're that that's that that's the kind of directing where I feel like you're just accumulating data you know you're accumulating moments which is a, in and of itself a very hard thing like getting great performances getting moments getting it from a, a million different angles. Uh, because you're not exactly sure what's right is, I mean, I understand that to a certain degree, but then turning over this like basket of moments to a, you know, the mystical magical editor that's going to somehow turn it into a movie as I don't think really solid, strong filmmaking. And if you look at all the filmmakers that most of us really admire, when you point to this pantheon of directors, everybody from, you know, Stanley Kubrick to Kurosawa to every Martin Scorsese, David Lean, you know, there's no accident that like David Lean started as an editor. There's no accident that Martin Scorsese was an editor. Um, to have an editorial sensibility, you don't have to be an editor, but I mean, to to know what that final process is of putting stuff together and why it works and what works, discovering that, um, it, it makes you a stronger filmmaker. So I brought that, and that just turns out that that ended up being super practical, particularly on low budget movies where you don't have the time to shoot it a million different ways. And if you want to finesse the image and the performance, boiling it down to saying, you know what, I think it's probably going to be this shot, this shot, and this shot. That's how it's going to go together. Then I can concentrate and do five or six takes of this medium shot rather than two takes of a medium shot, two takes of a close-up, and two takes of a wide shot, and then figure out later which one I'm going to use. You commit to that image... You, and then you get it right, and then you bank it, and then it's over, you know? And it's, and, and, and in a way, it's more of a tightrope because you're like, well, that's it. You know, that's that's what it's going to be. But I feel like that also gives your film a certain... Dis- I think the films that are shot by design, and you can look at people who really subscribe to storyboarding from, you know... Hitchcock is obviously the probably the most famous, but if you look at the Coen brothers who, you know, notoriously score storyboard all the way to something like Parasite, where every single freaking shot is storyboard, there's a feeling of intention and design, which I think in most cases is a good thing in cinema. Yes, do you discover things that on set do you I think my 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 philosophy is that if you come in with a plan then you're in a perfect position to pivot yeah or deviate from that plan if you find something more exciting but if you come in like with nothing 
you're only ever going to reach a certain height of, of performance of, of, of yourself as a director. I feel like you come in with a plan and then, you know, it's like, it's like studying for a test. It's like, well, you can come in and not study and just sort of hope you pass or think about how much better you feel, how much more confident you, you feel going into a test as a student when you've studied. You're like, you're still nervous, but you're like, yeah, I, I know this shit. Mm-hmm. You know, like, like you're going to be less surprised and more likely not to be like a deer caught in headlight in the headlights when something happens because you can fall back on, wait a minute, oh yeah, I thought about this. I, I think we can shoot it this way. So Well, I also think it leaves you open to collaboration too. If you've got a plan, you know how you know how and where you can deviate or when you should not. Correct. Or when an obstacle hits you, you know what the outcome was supposed to be. Mm-hmm. So how do we reach that with this thing that's been presented? Correct. You knew what it was supposed to be, but I can't do it this way. So how do I... This way. So how do I achieve that with what we have? How do I get that this other way? That's absolutely true. That's absolutely right? true. And, and that becomes creativity in and of itself. Absolutely. I feel like, you know, there are some directors, some students I run into. Look, I mean, if you can't, and it's not about, and I've said this a million times, and I've taught millions of classes where I talk about the importance of pre-conceptualizing. And people are like, I don't know how to draw, and I hate drawing. It's like, look at anybody's storyboards. I mean, Kurosawa's storyboards for Seven Samurai are like scratches, like literally chicken scratches. Um, Scorsese's storyboards are notoriously childlike. So are mine. It's not about drawing. It's not. It's it's about like setting down something that's conceptual in just the crudest form on paper, and then you're one step closer to actually what you're gonna do have to do anyway, which is to set up the shot. So people are like I just like to find it, man. It's like well, fuck. If you can like go out there and like find it all day long and make your day and like wind up with brilliance, then God love you. I wish I could do that. But I I liken it more to like you don't build a house and just start nailing boards together you know but no a film is not a house no but i i will tell it like i've always thought the script's a blueprint and Mm. you need to think of it as it's a it's also a conversation once i've written it it's a conversation that's being had with me myself as a director but it's also a conversation you're having with the dp Mm. with the production designer with everyone who has anything to do with that script Mm -hmm. and because it now becomes this collaborative blueprint for the movie you're building. Right. It is like a house that way. That's right. And I also feel like, you know how long it's taken. How many drafts you say you did of your script? 28. How many, how many, how much time have you spent writing this thing? Two and a half years. Yeah. How many, how, how many days will you spend ultimately making it? Uh, 22. All right. So you're going to spend 22 days putting down something that you spent years laboring over you know i think it was robert klein the comedian who said you know like a comedian i mean a writer will sit there and like all night like losing sleep going should this be an and or an or i don't uh, but you're gonna just but you're just gonna blow through now like like the script by the way as you know the script is not i mean in some cases it gets published but the script is not meant is not the final thing this, the script is something that you now mm-hmm. make the thing from. It's like it doesn't it doesn't stand alone. It's not meant to be the final result. So if you only got 22 days to do something that you've been laboring over for years, doesn't it behoove you as a director to give the shooting of this thing at least some degree of, of thoughtfulness as opposed to, I'm just going to get out there, man, and we're going to like, we're going to wing it. It's like, well... 
You don't write the fucking thing that way. You, you, you get how many drafts? 28 drafts? Okay, well, you're not going to have that time to do drafts. Uh, you don't, you're not going to have the budget to come back and reshoot half your movie, likely. You're going to have to get it then, mm-hmm. and that's it. And do you really just want to leave that to chance? I mean, after 30 years of directing, if you gave me a script now and said, Jack, in 20 minutes, I need you to direct it, thankfully i have the processing ability to now like to do that but that's a lifetime's worth of training and i still wouldn't want to do that but i defy anybody to just kind of like go give me that pages and we'll like we'll we'll work it out because i think in the end you're you're just this is laziness it's like well you know like it's a and more more so it's a waste it's a waste of all that labor all that labor and 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 uh, you know, it's like, what? It's like it's like going through childbirth and then, like, leaving the baby at the curb. It's like, well, uh, yeah, I hope he grows up okay. You know, I'm sure he'll be fine. You know, it's like, no, you got you to gotta care for that fucker, you know? Well, no, I mean, it is. That would be disrespectful to the time I put into crafting the script. Mm-hmm. But it would also be disrespectful for all of the collaborators I'm getting together for those 22 days. Mm-hmm. Because they're there to make sure, you would hope, that they're not just there for a paycheck, that they're there because I've collected them, because at this level it's an independent film where I'm, this is my vision and we're making something special, right? And you've brought them in to be part of that tribe to make this thing. Well, respect them too. Yeah. With your vision and be prepared, I would, you know. Yeah. To me, the film's always really at its core is she's happy at the start of it, right? Because you see her skateboarding mm-hmm. at the very beginning. Although I don't know if you've read that because I changed it a little bit. I don't know. I don't think. I mean, it's been a while since I've, I've read it. Yeah. So so I start. I, I basically have a bookend um, opening frame and closing frame. And she's going to be skateboarding during the day at the open. So she's doing a morning skateboard. And right. And you can tell she's really happy. And she's just she's it's just in the moment. And when you when she gets in the house and all of the societal stuff starts coming down on her, that's when you start seeing it kind of weigh in on her right Mm -hmm. and so the rest of the film is her coming back to that place of realizing she doesn't realize she's already happy single Hmm. right right so the journey is getting her to that place where she's like wait a minute i was happy i am happy what the fuck Mm -hmm. like (laughs) like, this is society telling me that i'm not happy not me telling me right 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 Mm -hmm. which is the exact journey I went through. I mean, I think there was a moment in my mid thirties to kind of beginning forties where I was really making myself like depressed and unhappy because I Mm -hmm. wasn't living up to some concept, concept, you know? And so that's where I need to get her. Right. Right. So I was thinking visually, wouldn't it be interesting if all of those beginning shots, she's center, right? Mm -hmm. And I think I think I've settled on one of the very first things that happens when she gets in her house is she goes in the mirror and she plucks out the hairs on her chin because that's what happens to us mm-hmm. as us young women in our forties and fifties. Right. Um, but mm-hmm. then all of a sudden mm-hmm. it starts moving and the rest of the film until there's a moment later shifts it. There's negative space on either side of her. She's in the center. Right. And so right. then when she decides to quit her job, like when she's realized that like she's on that journey yeah. of self-realization that that she's she's happy on her own. Like this is her happiness. 
starts coming back to center. Yeah. Yeah. No, I think that's great. I mean, being, I think that's great. I think like, you know, one of the things that you always want to try to do, what you're doing here is find a way to equate or to draw a line between what's happening emotionally to the characters or what's happening uh, thematically in the story to a technique, mm-hmm. to a visual technique like center framing or asymmetrical or framing or using negative space. A lot, a lot of the mistakes that, that filmmakers make is that you see a lot of very cool stylistic choices, but you don't really understand why, why it's being applied. You just know that it looks cool. So you get a lot of, a lot of jumble of, of, of things that, that look for the moment interesting, but don't necessarily add up to anything emotionally when you can find a way to support what's going on in the story or even better with the character visually. Uh, and that doesn't necessarily even just have to be, as you know, it doesn't have to be exclusively the composition, although that's a huge part of it. Yeah. Uh, it can be everything from the wardrobe to the kind of color of the clo- the color and style of the clothes that she wears when she's more herself versus what she ends up wearing mm-hmm. or to the to the color palette of the the world that she's you know struggling against versus the color palette of the world that she's happy in all those things like to think about that and again that that goes back to what we were saying before like how do you you don't you can't just like come up with that shit on the day yeah. you know like you 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 you, you if you're going to have like if you're going to make these choices that are going to come in to this design, then for the departments to know yeah. in ahead of time, so you can just get the elements together, you have to like have a plan. So, but I do think that that idea of symmetrical framing to subtly imply that she's home or in a good spot and shifting to off center framing for when she's not comfortable, uh, I think is like something that, yeah. and it's all degrees. I mean, you can like, you know, you can do crazy, you know, negative space stuff that, you know, is like, you know, in many ways it's like, it's all, it's all, mm-hmm. it's all degrees. How much do you want to do it? Maybe you start to subtly, yeah. you know, depending on how quickly things change in her life. And again, you need to know as a, as an arranger that in this scene, she's quasi, but here she's really fucked up. So that's when we're going to like, you know, so that's all super exciting. You know, because because then you're you're really using the medium. You're using the camera not as a recording device, which I think is a real error. Like the camera is not a Walgreens surveillance camera recording what's going on. The camera is paintbrush, and it can be as eloquent as any stroke master stroke if you choose to use it that way, or it can just be this you know nothing recorder of stuff, you know, of what happened, what's happening in the script. So, um, it's an, always an, like you said, you know, if the page if the blank page is an, is an opportunity, an endless opportunity, series of opportunities to be creative, then designing now, once the script is done, your visual translation of that script, and that's really what it is. Directing visually is a translation of that written word because you're not going to film the page of the script, right? You got to translate it into a series of shots. That's also an enormous opportunity. Like, holy shit, this could be anything. What do I choose it to be? But to your point, like, if I, if we were just coming up and going, oh, well, let's just make it up, whatever. And on day 15 is when we figure out, wouldn't it be cool? Yeah. 
to do that shift, right, we've screwed, screwed it up because there is an ensemble around her, but she is in every scene, you know? And right. if I don't have that plan, right. what did we do those first 15 days? And it's not going to match. Well, here's the thing. I think that, and I don't, I don't recommend this at all, but because in most cases, everybody is shooting a high definition digitally now, you know, when you're dealing with a, a, you know, a 4K image or higher, the ability to recompose something Mm -hmm. that was once that was once off center or centered into something else is possible without really noticing. And but I think the problem with I mean, that can save you like in a situation where all of a sudden you discover something amazing that could really that where you can't go back and reshoot. I think the problem with some, you know, it's like anything. It's like, I love that ability to be able to manipulate something. But I don't think that's a that's a substitute for preparation. A lot of people would just say, well, didn't shoot everything wide in 8k and then just carve it up into a million different shots and post. You know, you can do it that way. That's not accounting for lenses or perspective or anything that happen when you or picking up the camera and moving it, what, how that changes the energy of a shot. But a lot of like really blame directors will rely upon the technology at the crutch to say, well, fuck, I didn't, I really needed a close up, but I got cowboy we'll just blow it up and no one will know. And most cases they won't. But I do think that you can really feel a direct, I mean, I don't care what your personal taste is. Your favorite director, the one that you really like made you want to be a filmmaker is not that person. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? Like the filmmakers that you really admire is not this person that just sort of figured it out in post. The, the, The one that inspired you is somebody who figured it out before <laughs> you know i mean i think it's funny because like again like if you get accustomed to 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 this kind of design thought process as far as shooting and cutting how your movie's going to come together preconceiving it um no matter how crudely you may draw it or sketch it but just getting into that headspace then when you get into a situation you can actually choose to let go of some of those things like night now like like i don't necessarily storyboard every single shot because it's so i can hold those things in my head that are not like i storyboard the more complicated Mm -hmm. sequences or the ones that are really montage driven where it's going to be a lot of i know it's going to be a lot of pieces to tell this story um or it's going to be effect stuff where i'm going to have to communicate very specifically this shot is going to be an effect or this piece of it is going to be an effect. And I have to communicate that to different department heads. I don't storyboard every single conversation because I can hold that in my, in my head and know what I'm going to do when I get there without having to physically draw it, draw it. Or like in the case of Spielberg, who was like a hyper storyboarder Mm -hmm. chose to rely upon his instincts when he did something like saving private Ryan for the most part, because he wanted that, spontaneous choice to be part of the pseudo documentary style of the movie, the combat cameraman's perspective. And he was, he, at that point he was, um, so, um, fluent and immediate, a visual storyteller that he could walk onto the set and go, yeah, camera should be here. Camera should be here. Camera should be here without really wasting any time. The same way you would be as a documentarian, if you ran up to see if a building was on fire, you wouldn't be standing there going, hmm, how am I going to shoot this building on fire? Yeah. Let's have a discussion. Or I'll give me 20 minutes and I'll come back with an idea. It's like, no, you're going to say, go over there and get a thing of this and a shot of this. And, And so 
but again, it starts with a discipline that I think in the end just makes for, for a better movie. And and if there is an accidental, and I'm sure that like again, there are all kinds of amazing happy accidents. But considering how many, how few days you have to make a movie, and the ridiculous imbalance in the sense that the shortest amount of time in any production is the shoot. Like you spend way longer in post, you spend certainly way longer in prep, in prep writing it, finding the money. Like it's an enormous imbalance, and then you get this weeny teeny little. A window and then you bag that's where you're gonna actually make the movie like valerie my wife again who comes from theater was always like amazed how like you guys don't even rehearse it's like you guys are crazy like you know like you're not even gonna rehearse like i mean people rehearse on the day but it's not like theater where you're like which makes sense like hey we're gonna let let yeah let's uh spend a couple weeks rehearsing this so that we can like hopefully when we shoot the scene we've discovered a few things then and make it the best scene we can it's like crazy in a way yeah because it's the most expensive part of the process it makes sense that it would be the shortest i mean i was i was talking to someone yesterday and i was like i went to a screening of the big chill would that film get made today yeah there's so many of the movies that are that are like so essential uh, to our lives and that would never be made today. And, you know, and I look at these things and it's just like the world, I mean, when I see how the, what the world's become and I believe me, I'm not like, you know, one of these, like there shouldn't be superhero movies, but it's kind of like, it's so shifted. It's so rad. It's so again, imbalanced, you know, where it's like, yeah, they're making the Batman. Now they're making the Batman sequel. It's like, yeah, yeah. Okay. But it's like, Jesus, there's more to to this. There's more to this medium, you know. That there's there's so much more possible, and it's like it's like you're saying, well, I'm only gonna eat, I'm only ever gonna eat pizza. It's like, yeah, pizza's great. I love pizza. It might even be my favorite food. Do I only want to eat pizza the rest of my life? No, you know. Um, And is it possible to have other foods be possibly even more gratifying in different ways than pizza? Yeah. Like, it's like, we're all in just, we're on, on the pizza planet now, you know, that's where we live, you know? Yeah. I mean, it's not just that. It's like, then you're trying to get your independent film made and you realize that the streamers are now grabbing all the actors and paying them ungodly amounts of money. And none of them want to do the films that might get them an Oscar nomination because, I mean, look what just won. Yeah. Coda won. It was $10 million, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know? Yeah. Well, I just think, you know, it's like, you know, I, I, it's a, it's a totally, you know, new, new world. And I think that it's like, but I think that we've all now gotten to the point where we actually have a lot of the tools in our hands. And if we really need to make something, we'll find a way, you know? And I think that's the most hopeful part of it is going back to like optimism. It's like yourself out of like, you know, write yourself out of a low budget but if you write something that you know that you can like pretty much get it done you can get it done one way or the other one way or the other yeah would it be nice to have 10 million would nice to have a million yeah absolutely but even me i'm thinking like this film i want to make me yeah it'd be great to have like three three and a half i could do it for that i mean like i i wouldn't be really good and i'm thinking but maybe i'm only gonna get a million could i do it for half could i do it for a couple hundred, 250, you know, like I'm like, how could I do, you know, like finding a way to uh, make it work 
is it, it, over over in, in general is the filmmaker's philosophy. I got to find a way to make it work, one way or the other. Um, so um, I'm sure you're going to find a way. I'm super excited for you. And um, send me everything you got, and then we'll keep talking. Okay. It's so awesome. Ed, thank you for your time, and this is. It's just great to hear your perspective too, because you know you, you've got so much knowledge. Ah, no, no, it's my pleasure. You know, and I'm just so appreciative that you're sharing it with me. Thanks for having me. <laughs> Thank you so much for tuning into Bliss with Spinster. If any of these conversations are resonating with you, please subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can find Blissful Spinster on Instagram and Twitter and through our website, blissfulspinster.com. Again, thanks so much for joining me on this journey. And until next week, go find your happy. <laughs>